All right, um, so during this Lenten season, we are walking through the Old Testament covenants um, in preparation for, the, for Easter that's coming, for Jesus and the new covenant um, that Jesus makes through his death and his resurrection. And so it feels like this is a really good opportunity to understand one of the fundamental themes that we see coming through Scripture over and over and over again. This idea that God continually makes covenant with his people as a means of bringing them back into relationship with him. So Jenny last week started us off with the um, covenant with Noah and talked us through this idea of covenant in the Bible. But I'll give just a quick recap here just in case um, you you weren't able to hear it. Um, So this idea of covenant, like we know it in our own culture in different ways. This idea of an agreement between two people or uh, two parties that helps to define the relationship. Now, anybody who grew up in the 90s and knew DTRs? Anybody? (laughs) DTRs? Um, So, like, that's it. Like, how are we going to define the relationship? How are we going to live together? So in our context, we we think about it as the marriage covenant. We actually call it a covenant. Because this idea of, like, how are we going to live together? Um, In between, like, nations, we have treaties as a way to say, here's what I'm going to do and here's what you're going to do. And we're going to like live in agreement in these particular ways. So in the ancient Near East, which is the culture of the Old Testament, um, this was at play as well, this idea of covenant between people and nations or people groups. And like, as you know, like in this, there was like the small like land, there wasn't a whole lot, you know, there were a lot of different people groups all within the same location. And so it was imperative then that you understood and agreed how you were going to live together. And who was going to do what for whom. Um, and so that is how they define the terms, was this idea of covenant. Jenny introduced last week the idea of the suzerain and the vassal. So we'll talk about that just real quickly. This idea of um, a suzerain who is a stronger party in the agreement, who vows to provide for and protect the weaker party. Um, and so saying, like, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'll provide protection for you. Um, since you are a smaller group of people, you're a smaller nation, you don't have as much power. In, it, in, um, in response, then, the vassal, who is the weaker party, vows to do, do things on behalf of the suzerain, uh, potentially like military, be part of their military, um, and vows to fight, fight for the suzerain on behalf of the suzerain, or per- perhaps to pay homage or pay tax to the suzerain in exchange for protection. And so that's the dynamics that we see happening in a lot of these covenants is these two parties, a suzerain and a vassal, who are coming together and making agreements. The reality is that we see these covenants in the Bible as well. Sometimes between individuals deciding like how they're going to be at peace, but um, also between humans and God. This is God using the forms that make sense to them, something from their day-to-day life, as a way to reveal himself to them and show them how he's working in their midst. And so God is taking something from within their own culture and saying, let's do this because this is something that, that comes to you on your level that you can understand, but through which I can show you who I am. That's what God's trying to do. And here's how we can live together. So let's think about the biblical story as a whole and how covenants play out in it. So when we go back to the beginning, 
the first people of God, Adam and Eve, were living in harmony with God in the Garden of Eden. Until we get two chapters in, right? Well, we get two chapters, and then we get to chapter three, and sin comes into the world. The people of God sinned against God by doing what he forbid them to do, and they were then expelled from perpetually living in his presence. They were sent out of the garden, and a, and a, a, a garden, guardian was put in front of the garden so they couldn't re-enter. This we know as the fall. So the covenants in scripture are God's way of coming toward humanity to try to reestablish this relationship, this fellowship that's been lost because of sin. If we can no longer live in the garden, live in God's presence, how are we meant to have communion with God? That's the big question, right? If we can't live in the garden, what are we going to do? And so God says over and over again, I will make a way. And he does so through covenant. So last week, we looked at the covenant between God and Noah. And so let's pick up where we left off. So Noah and his family come off the ark after the great flood. The ark being a moment of decreation and then recreation afterward. And God makes covenant with Noah and promises to never destroy humankind again. But as we continue on in the text, what we see is that the human condition does not improve. Immediately after Noah's story, we are met by the Tower of Babel. This is humanity's attempt to make themselves great by building a tower to the heavens. Does this not sound like the fall? Again, right? This idea of we're going we're gonna to do this ourselves and we're going to be great in our own name. But God thwarts their plan and scatters them, and he confuses their language. So that is Genesis 1 to 11. Um, A lot happens, um, and there we go. Um, But once we get to Genesis 12, what we see happen is a shift in the story. um, The biblical narrative shifts in some ways around this man named Abram. So let's read in Genesis 12 about Abram and his call from the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, so what's happening here? The Lord calls Abram to leave his kindred and to go to the place that God will show him. He doesn't tell him ahead of time, though, where he's going. He just tells him to go. And... By miracle, Abram went. He's like, okay. And he got up and he left. And what God promises Abram are descendants and land. He also promises to make his name great. And if you go back into chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, one thing that this is just for free. I just was thinking about this because it's a cool part of the text. Um, when you go back in chapter 11 and at the Tower of Babel, it says they are trying to make their name great. It's the same verb trying to make their name great, in chapter 11, by building this tower to the heavens. 
God thwarts that plan, and then immediately in chapter 12, he comes to Abram and he says, I will make your name great. Do you hear it? The shift. I am going to make your name great. I'm going to bless all the, all the families of the earth through you. So what God promises Abram then to carry this blessing out is he promises him descendants and he promises him land. He promises him people and a place. Now, Sandy Richter, the, in the book, um, The Epic of Eden, um, talks about redemption in the Bible. One of the ways that she describes it is redemption is God restoring the people of God into the place of God so that they can experience the presence of God. God restoring the people of God into the place of God so that they can experience the presence of God. Do you see how that's restoring what was lost in the fall? Bringing it back online? God's saying, I'm going to find a way to do this. And we see this, that the beginnings of that here with Abraham in chapter 12. Now, I may say Abram and Abraham. Y'all just forgive me. So I may go back and forth. So Abram um, goes to this new land where he's a sojourner. So he's there in the land, but he doesn't really like have a place. He's kind of moving around, but he's in the land. And at the same time, um, God has promised to give him and his descendants this land so that they may worship him and be in communion with him. But these promises that, that God has given Abraham back in chapter 12, as he continues on into the narrative, they've yet to come to fruition Abram has heard the plan, and he has moved out. He's gone in faith. And yet, it doesn't happen just right away. He's still waiting. He's in that time between promise and fulfillment. And it's in that space, then, that we join Abram in chapter 15. And that is technically our text for today. So let's read that together. We're going to be in Genesis 15, uh, verses 1 to 21. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no offspring And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven. Count the stars if you are able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, 
that your offspring shall be aliens in the land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there. And they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerasites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a lot happening here in this text, but what is it? What's going on? So the Lord promises to protect Abram and to give him a reward. Now let's think about our suzerain vassal um, categories that we were talking about earlier. From verse 1, we see God's telling, um, telling Abram that he promises to protect him and give him a reward. That sounds like suzerain language, doesn't it? But then Abraham does this great thing where he questions how God's plan is going to work. Because even though he left on this journey, trusting Yahweh's plan, he still doesn't have any offspring. He still doesn't have any descendants. And so he asks a logical question. How in the world, Lord, are you going to pull this off? And God says, okay, let me show you. And he takes him outside and he shows him the stars. This will be the number of his descendants. And it says that Abram believed or trusted the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But the story doesn't end there. Abram has more questions. And so Abram asked, him, asked the Lord again, Lord, how am I to know that I will possess it? Another translation for this question says, how can I be sure? I love that question. <laughs> Do y'all? Anybody else? <laughs> like, hey, Lord, I hear what you're saying, but I don't see it yet. So how in the world can I be sure? I mean, here God has taken Abram outside and shown him the stars. Like, that was a nice move, honestly, you know? And, like, enough to be like, okay, I see it. And so Abraham believes, but he's also kind of like, yeah, I believe you, and yet I'm still not totally sure how it's all going to work out. Maybe I believe it's going to happen, but I just don't see how it's going to happen, God. I still don't have a, a child. What I also love is that God does not rebuke Abram in this moment. But instead, God says, okay, let's do it this way. He says, bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Anybody? <laughs> that sounds natural, right? So what in the world is happening? It's time to cut a covenant. That's what's happening here. So one of the things that happens in a covenant is that to ratify it or to seal the deal at the end of it is this idea of cutting. A sacrifice is made. Blood is needed. And this is what it looks like. 
At the end of a covenant, a sacrifice is made, and then, and so the, the pieces are cut apart. And that's why we call it a cutting of a covenant. And the vassal, the weaker party, is the one who walks through the pieces, walks between the pieces, promising their loyalty to the suzerain. And as they walk through the pieces, they say, may I be like these animals if I don't hold up my part of the promise, if I don't hold up my part of the covenant. So here in this, in this text, verse 10, Abram brings the animals and he cuts them. Not the birds. I'm not sure why. Maybe because they're small. Not really sure. But he cuts the animals in half and he lays them out. And then he falls into a deep sleep. And what we see happen is God tells him, what will happen to his people down the line? What happens to those who are coming after him? He tells, them, he tells Abram about their captivity in Egypt, but also how God will bring them out and establish them. Basically, this promise that Yahweh is making is not just about Abram. It goes beyond him. It's going to outlast him. And so what God does in this moment is to like tell him, here's what's going to happen after you're gone, but here's also what's going to happen to you. And then after that, something really cool happens. It's not Abram, the vassal, or the weaker, weaker party, who's walking through the sacrifice pieces. Who is it instead? Verse 17. It is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that appears and starts going through the pieces. It's God himself who is promising to hold up the covenant. It's God himself who is putting himself on the line, saying, may I be like these animals. I'll be the sacrifice. I will come toward you, and I will make sure that this covenant stands. This is our God. Amen? And this is his promise over and over and over again through scripture. Now, here's why I love Abraham's story. He has heard the promise of God and follows, to, and follows God's call to go. His faith is admirable and it's noteworthy. Even God himself accounting for his faithfulness and his righteousness. But it's not a faith that is devoid of questions. Abram himself is a realist at heart. Anybody else in the room? I am. I want to know. Like I hear the promise and yet I'm saying to God, but Lord, this part is still broken. That's what I hear in Abram's question to God. I hear what you're saying, God, and I believe you. I see the stars and I'm trying to hold on to it. But look here, God, I don't have a child yet. This part is still broken. This part doesn't feel redeemed yet. I hear what you're saying, God, but realistically speaking, I don't see how you're going to work this thing out. This is what Lent feels like to me. We hear and we know the promises of God of his desire to redeem us and to heal us, and yet 
we can still see what's broken. We see what's broken in us. We see what's broken around us. And Lent is an intentional time of saying to God, but what about this part, Lord? It's still broken. And so I'm, I'm going to bring it to you. And that's the invitation of Lent to us, is to bring him the broken pieces, the already and the not yet that we're living in the midst of, living between, between promise and fulfillment. The good news is that Abraham's story wasn't over. And neither was God's plan of redemption. This is just a foretaste. This is just a foreshadowing of what God will continue to do over and over again, culminating with Jesus and the new covenant. God will once again walk through the pieces God again will once again become the sacrifice. He will become, take on the promise and the responsibility to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to hold up both sides of the covenant. We think about Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, who is then able to walk through the pieces all the way to the cross, to be the sacrifice on our behalf. And to be raised again. This is the good news. Amen. And it's not just our story. It's not just about our story. It's God's story. And we get to be enfolded into his story of redemption. His story of healing and bringing peace and wholeness to each and every one of us. We get to be part of that. And the reality is, is that he's not finished yet. But we can look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Just like he took Abram to look out at the stars, he tells us, look to Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I'm going to see this thing through. Amen.